Today's reading is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught, and as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because of the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. I hope that uh, you all had uh, wonderful holidays. We were in California, and uh, we do that every year. And uh, it was a little chilly down there, but, uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what am I saying, right? Yeah, a little chilly down there. But remember, I spent 17 years in Alaska. I know what chilly is. And, uh... All right, so I want to start with the word paradox. Uh, Jesus is uh, uh, has a paradoxical nature about him, and we will... Uh, be looking at that this morning. But the word definition of the word is a statement or situation that may be true, but seems like a contradiction because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics. So I want to I make a distinction here between paradox and contradiction. And this would be a contradiction. <laughs> it, there's no way that that makes any sense. Uh, there's something wrong with this picture, right? And here's another one. This is from the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, Cleveland <laughs> Browns. That was this year. And we all know that the refs need a little more training, but they can't both be right. And um, contradiction. Not a paradox. Not a paradox. That truly is a contradiction. Okay, here's another one. This is what? Paradox or contradiction? He's a gentle giant. Andrew the Giant. See, that's a paradox. He's able to hold it together. Uh, anybody have a peanut? Uh, got it? Okay, some of you got it. Um, the, uh, yeah, but the, this is where we're going with Jesus, is that he's, a, he's we wouldn't say he's a gentle giant, but you get, you're going to get the idea here that he, he's big enough to be both a king who can ride into Jerusalem, but do it on a donkey. 
right? You see the, see the paradox there? Uh, we're going to be, this is our outline for this morning, but before we go there, I want to talk a little bit more about Jesus as a paradox. Um, in the Christmas season, there's a, a, I mean, a king born in a manger. In the Easter season, a king with a crown of thorns dying on a cross. You see the, and those are not contradictions in Jesus. Those are things that are truly who he is. And he, he's big enough to hold that all together. You are a paradox. I am a paradox. And scripture says that. In the Psalms, it says that you, as a human being, are just a little less, you were created just a little less than the angels. That's a compliment if you didn't know it. And then it also says in the Psalms that you and I are like the beasts of the fields. One of my favorite musicians is a, guy, a Canadian guy named Bruce Coburn, and he has a line in a song calling us the angel beasts. And having just come from spending a week with my two grandsons, I understand what an angel beast <laughs> is. And they can, they can be so angelic and so beastly, right? And all of that is within the human condition. We are truly angel beasts. That's a paradox. We're able to pull that off, to hold that together. That's what God says about us. On the other hand, or in addition to that, we are also contradictions. Within ourselves, there's contradictions. And this is where we really get in trouble. Uh, if you have a, a contradiction within yourself, you really, really are set up for hypocrisy or other things that aren't good. And there's just a lot of parts of me that aren't quite there. And things where I think, uh, I don't care how many New Year's come by, the resolutions aren't helping, right? And that there are things that I want to do differently in my life that I just can't seem to get my hands around. And I live with this divided heart, and and I'm a contradiction. Uh, And God wants to heal that. He really does. So just a little bit more introduction here. We're into the final week of Jesus' life as Mark records it. And we have spent somewhere around, if, I, I, don't, I know you haven't all been here every Sunday, but if you go back over the last two years, and I've, we've done this in two different parts, but we've spent about 35 Sundays covering the first two-thirds of Jesus' life. And now in this, according to Mark, and then in this last, uh, between now and Easter, the final third only takes up seven days. So this first 35 weeks was roughly three years, and now we've got one week. Do you see how Mark just really slows down the pace? He wants you to pay a particular attention to what is going on in what we call Holy Week and what the Jewish calendar calls Passover Week. And this is the beginning of that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And this is, these are the three things that we're going to look at and ask the paradox contradiction question of. But I want to go back just to make sure, do a little uh, review here, that in Mark chapter 8, right up in here, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Has no idea what he's saying. And that's proven by this journey from the north down to the south, to Jerusalem, which is where they are right now. And along the way, Jesus three times says that what it means to be Messiah is I'm going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. He says it three times, but it never, they never get it. So um, th- there's a sense in which Jesus is, is revealed as Messiah, and it's, but it's still hidden to everybody, uh, including his closest uh, confidants. 
And now he's going to enter into Jerusalem. And this is Jerusalem today. This is a picture from the Mount of Olives, which is where we would be standing. And Jesus, in the story that was read for us, is walking across. He's walking from the east. And in the Bible, east is always the place of hope. What rises in the east? The sun. It's a new day. And, and a lot of cultures would say this, the East is a place of hope. And the West, in the, in the Hebrew mind, is a place of darkness and, uh, and really evil. So uh, Jesus is coming in from the East. And he's going to, this is the temple area right here. This, you see the wall here, uh, the outside wall of the city. But this, this right here is the Dome of the Rock, which is a, a Muslim holy site now. But that, that's where the temple was. Jesus would have seen the temple as he came this direction from the east. And um, this hopefully is going to, uh, I'm giving you a little preview here, but we want to get into these three sections now. Let's start with the triumphal em- entry. Jesus comes in on a Sunday, and uh, he is uh, riding on a donkey, which was prophesied by Zechariah in the Old Testament. And there's another uh, Old Testament reference there, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. Now, the people are are saying this, but the first thing I want you to know is that this city in that time was roughly a city of maybe 40 to 100,000 people. We don't know exactly. That was the normal population of Jerusalem. So it doesn't sound big today, but that was a pretty big-sized city the first century. And um, when it came to Passover week, the population doubled, tripled. We don't, really don't know, but all the people came all around. P- Passover was the biggest, the biggest feast in the Jewish year at that time. And it lasted all week, and they would come from all around up to Jerusalem. The pilgrimage would begin. And Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, says that roughly 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem that week. It was not a good week if you're an animal lover, you know? And in the text here, it talks about doves as well. So the, the, the poorest of the poor had to uh, uh, offer up doves. And this whole sacrificial system was built around the temple. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem during this week in which the population has swelled and people are jammed in. And I just want to make the point that there's, an, there's still an ambiguity hanging over Jesus that sometimes gets missed on Palm Sunday. And the, the ambiguity is, according to Mark, that people really don't know who he is. Remember, his disciples didn't know he It's not clear. Who is this guy is still the main question. And he comes in and they say things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they don't have no idea what Messiah means. And they don't even know... And the other thing we don't know is how many of the actual population was there that day saying it. It said a crowd, but what does that mean? We know there were a lot of people who weren't there, and he had a lot of enemies, and they weren't, they weren't saying this. So it, there's lots of questions that we might ask, but um, I thought of my own illustration. It's kind of a, a sort of a halfway illustration, but last June I ran in the, uh, along with many of you super athletes, we ran in the rock and roll marathon, Right? And yes, look, t- take pride in yourself if you did that. And um, the, as you got going, there were a lot of people that were encouraging you and they were shouting encouragement to you. And they didn't say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or Hosanna, but they said a lot of nice things. And then as you, enter, as you cross the finish line and you think, it may, they made everybody feel like a hero. Now, I'm not saying that, that that's how they, they did this for everybody. There, there was something very special about Jesus, but I'm not sure the people knew what they were saying. 
And I'm not sure that they, there was an ambiguity. Riding, a king riding on a donkey must have raised as many questions as anything else. It didn't, didn't answer the question. People weren't saying, oh, now I get it. He's the Messiah. Mark presents the question of who Jesus is. It's always veiled. It's hidden. People are not getting it. And so we have that here in this entry. That's, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on the, uh, what we call Palm Sunday deal, but um, other than to say that at the, another, another pointer here is that at the end of that day, on that Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. The temple is the, just the, that central place that without the temple, Israel doesn't even exist as a nation. It's, it's that central to it. The Torah, meaning the Old Testament scriptures and the temple, are the two things that give Israel identity that is separate from the other nations. And if you take the temple away, it's a huge thing. And by the way, 40 years after this event of Jesus walking in, the temple is absolutely destroyed by the Romans. And that creates a crisis of identity for Israel that they still live with today. I mean, it's um, history is, is pretty new here. So Jesus goes to the temple after he comes in and there's no crowd with him so you know another hint that he's not being understood as the the messiah just his 12 are with him and he looks around the temple and but it says it was getting late and we're sort of set up there wondering what's going to happen on monday and that's where the story is going to go so now we go to the fig tree a fig tree, the poor fig tree. I mean, just like the lambs. You know, the, the, some people have said about that, that Jesus. This is not a good reflection on Jesus. That he's hungry and he sees a fig tree over there and he goes over to it and since there's no figs on it, he curses it. And isn't that petty and arbitrary? And I mean, you know what I'm talking about here? Come on. So uh, we have to get past that to see that there's something really, really deep going on here, and it has to do with Israel in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, the prophets call Israel a fig tree. And that, is, that fig tree is representing Israel. And that there's a connection here between the temple, the center of Israel, and the fig tree, which is, it's all written together here. It's woven together You've got to see it. So that when Jesus uh, says to the fig tree, you will never bear fruit again, he's really saying to Israel, you will never bear fruit again. Now remember, Israel's calling was to be a light to the nations where all people would be drawn to the temple and they would come and worship the living God. Everyone in the whole earth, that's the ultimate calling of Israel. That's why they exist. And they had forgotten their existence. And therefore they could not be fruitful again. And Jesus just says what is true. They're not fruitful. And they won't be fruitful again. All right. So we got the uh, fig tree in there. And we've got uh, the... Now we go on to the third thing that was... Uh, the third event. And that is the cleansing of the temple. But I want you to see that... Uh, there was a contradiction, back to that word contradiction. When Jesus looked at the fig tree, when Jesus looked at Israel, there was a contradiction. They were not living in their vocation. They were not doing what they were supposed to do. There was a divided heart there. It's not a paradox. Let me read to you the verses. This is the, the key part that I want to get at this morning is the clearing or the cleansing of the temple. So this is on Monday. Remember on Sunday night, Jesus had looked at the temple area and taken it in and said, it was, but it was too late to do something and whatever he was going to do is going to happen now. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area 
and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tablets of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Is Jesus being a lion or a lamb? A lion or a lamb? This is a lion. When the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, is asked to um, identify the one who's going to open up the scroll that's going to make everything visible, the, the revealing of all things, and he can't figure out who's going to do it, he's told by an angel to look for the lion. And he looks around, and all he can see is a slaughtered lamb. And he comes to the conclusion that the lion is the lamb. Now that's a paradox, folks. The lion is the lamb. Who's big enough that we would say that about? You see? And now he's a lion. But by Friday, he'll be the lamb, right? Let me read on here. And as he taught them, he said, Jesus said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, this was the vocation of Israel, was to make their temple a house of prayer for all nations. But they have turned it into a robber's den. Now let me give you the picture here. Um, This is Herod's temple. There were three temples in Israel. There was the Solomon's temple, the original temple, temple that he built that was destroyed in uh, around the year 600. And then there was a second temple built that was much smaller than this. And then Herod's temple was built over that. And it's actually bigger than Solomon's temple. It's huge. Uh, Herod was called the great. And you can be called the great in history and still be a really, really bad person. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Because the world values what you built. And he was just evil. He was the guy was he killed his own family members, you know. But he's still called the great because he built stuff like this. At any rate, that's uh, uh, this is this is the main part of the temple where the holy place and the uh, holy of holies is. And this is the court of women. Women cannot go uh, beyond that. Sorry, women, but that's the way it was back then. And this out here is called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not uh, enter into any of this area. And Jesus came into this area and he turned over those, those tables. And there's a lot of conflict at this point going on between Jesus and the temple. We're going to see it as we walk through this week, slowly walk through this week, over and over again. A lot of the conflict is between Jesus and the temple. So let's just stop for a second and look at at least three sources of that conflict. I've already mentioned one. One is that uh, the, the temple area was meant to be a place of access for the Gentiles to at least come close to the presence of God yeah, that was uh, imaged in the temple at least. And they could not come because of these money changers. And so Jesus is really upset. That creates conflict between Jesus and the temple. Secondly, however, there were if you pay attention at all, as you read the scriptures, you'll notice that Jesus has a lot of enemies. And he's getting more and more enemies as he goes along. Uh, now, I have to be careful here to say this, that Jesus loved his enemies. Just loved them. And that becomes clear also as the week goes on. So that when he's being crucified, he asks his father to forgive those enemies. I mean, this is, this is the love of God. But 
if we think of those groups, and we'll touch on each of them uh, over the next few months, but you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and by the way, they absolutely hate each other. I mean, there's just, it'd be, I don't know what to compare it with today. Uh, just, just they, they absolutely hate each other. And then you have the scribes and the teachers of the law, and they, you know, they all have their little uh, places and their, their axes to grind or their agendas or their views on things. And then you have this other group. And this, you can't understand Easter week without hearing about this group, and that is the high priests. And the reason the high priests are so important in the story and how it unfolds is that they are an economic and political as well as religious. All those other groups were religious groups, but when you have the economic and political layered on top of the religious, whew, watch out. So they control this temple. Remember, the temple is the center of the nation, and they control this whole area, and they're the ones who licensed these money changers and uh, animal uh, sellers out here, and they get a little temple tax off of everything that was sold. And Jesus is coming in and disrupting their system. Now, none of the other groups that I mentioned who are enemies of Jesus have the ear of the Romans, but the high priests do. And so this, the speculation is that when Jesus came in and cleansed the temple, he signed his death warrant on Monday morning. That, that, that was it. You, you, could, you could survive by just having those other enemies, but when you've got the high priests in there, they talk to Rome, and Rome is ultimately who sends Jesus to his death on a cross. I mean, it depends on how you look at it, but that's, uh, they're an important... Uh, player in the whole thing. Does that make sense? We hear, you see why this is so important? Okay, now there's a third reason why there's conflict between Jesus and the temple. And this is the most amazing one that I want you to hear. If we go back into Mark chapter 2, just as the first place where we see these, what Jesus does, where he hear these words, you'll, you'll, I think you'll get it. There was a paralytic there, a man, and he came up to Jesus and Jesus touched him and healed him but he also said these words, my son, you are forgiven. If you have those words from Jesus, if he has, truly has the authority to say those words, you do not need a temple. That whole temple system is simply to procure some measure of forgiveness. That's the point of it. So the, the, what Jesus is, there's conflict between Jesus, the new temple of God, and the old temple of God. The old temple of God was a good thing that God gave as a placeholder, but they've turned it into an idol, and so they can't see what is right in front of them, who is the new temple of God, the one who says to you, my son or my daughter, you are forgiven. You don't have to go through all of, you think the, the, the lambs and the doves didn't, that, that was good news for them too. They don't have to be. So this whole system is in conflict with Jesus Christ. Now, let's just that's the teaching based on the text this morning. Let me just give you a little deepening of understanding of temple because we're going to be around the temple a lot. And then I'm going to close with just a question for our own hearts in all of this. So, okay, so the first temple in the Bible, the first temple in the Bible, uh, most theologians would argue, is the, the Garden of Eden. 
It's that special place that is walled off from the rest of creation where you find God's presence, his holy dwelling, most intensively. And it's there that we find the story in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's a place where everything is in sync between the man and the woman, each other, between them and their God, between God and them, between creation and all. It's everything is just... It's, there's a hum to it. There's a, um, a, it just fits. Everything's good. And then in chapter three, human beings, and we're, we're in this, we know this, we like to self-manage, have you noticed? We like to do things our way. And they do that for the first time. They ignore God's voice to them, his word. And there's consequences, just like a parent, there's consequences. And one of those consequences was they were expelled from the temple or the garden. And when they were expelled, there was an angel put there. And this is not just any angel. It's an angel with a, you have to almost think in terms of um, video games these days, but an angel with a flaming sword that is revolving. In other words, don't even try to go back in. You will die, right? So at the same time, God wants to relate to his people and he gives them a way or appoints them towards a way to relate to him and that turns into a tabernacle which is a temporary structure where God's uh, presence was and then a a temple in Jerusalem which we've already gone through the history of and so the temple uh, or the tabernacle and the temple become that those places where where God dwells now let me give you a one more um this is the inside of that that large that tall part of the temple area, and here oh here we go. Here's the uh, Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, and here's the court of women, and here's the court of Israel. This is where the sacrifices are made, and then you have the holy place, and then there's a cubed area in here uh, with the most holy place, and in the original temple, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, but that's no longer uh, there, and. Uh, once a year, the high priest would go in there and make sacrifices on behalf of the nation. Okay, dividing that holy place from the most holy place was a curtain. That curtain was 60 feet tall and four inches thick. And so big and strong. And when Jesus died, at the moment he died, Mark tells us in chapter 15, that, that curtain was torn in two. And everyone, Gentiles, everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter what skeleton is in your closet, no matter what, what blood is in your veins, everyone is invited into the presence of God. It's accessible. God is, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's, and that, that, that happens when the Lamb of God is, is slaughtered. And we have the potential now to live in sync in sync with each other, in sync, well, in sync with God first and then with each other and with creation. And, you know, you look around this world today and you just think about what that would look like to be, have all that stuff in sync. I mean, there's no more wars and all the rest. And then within ourselves, because we have contradictions within ourselves. I mean, this is where I, I started here, I'm going to end here. We need healing within ourselves. And, and the world that we live in calls it psychology. And I do read psychology. I, I value the counselors that we have, and, and I think they have great help. But ultimately, we need a touch from the living God. 
to really be healed, to really live in sync. And, and this is what uh, is available to us. So let me look at my, my own contradictions for a sec, and, and you can uh, put your own. But Well, let me look at Paul's first. That's safer. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with Paul. Um, Paul, in chapter 7 of Romans, he says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Does he not speak for all of us? Or why don't I do the things that I know I, I should do? I mean, that's just a human heart question that, and, and for me, it's like, well, I, I really do want to be a generous person, but why do I cling to things? Why do I meditate on things? Why do I allow those things to preoccupy me when really I, I know that that's not the answer to my living out of sync, to my being? I mean, that's a contradiction within me that I have to wrestle with. And, and why do I lust for things and you know, my eyes wander and I covet, and why do I do that? I don't want to do that. I want to be a person who's pure. I'm, there's a contradiction within me. And why is it that I look down at other people who don't live up to my standards, and then it really hurts when I realize I don't live up to my standards, you see? And you get all this contradiction stuff going inside of you. And we need somebody who's not a contradiction, but who's big enough to be a paradox, to heal the heart that we carry with us. Someone who is like a king riding into town on a donkey, who's big enough to do that, who is a lion and a lamb, who's big enough to do that, who has infinite holiness and infinite love. At the same time, how do you do that? This is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. And we pray that he would heal our hearts. That, that the paradox of who Jesus is, with all of his great, with all of his, the, the breadth of, from this to this, that he can pull off because he's who he is. That he would touch me. That my heart would hunger for him in my life. You see? The paradox... We need, as contradictions, we need paradoxes to heal us, and Jesus is the ultimate. Let's pray. Lord, I, you know, just uh, yesterday, I think it was, where I said, I want to pray, and then I got busy. Um, the list goes on, and it wears us out. I know that all of us... Um, all those shoulds that are really good shoulds, but they wear us out because we fall short. And we're so thankful for your grace that finds us and that you don't love us any less when we fail and all that. But, oh, Lord, we need your touch. We need your healing touch upon our hearts. And that you infinitely are holy and infinitely are love. That you're able to hold those together. Oh, Lord, we stand in awe, in needy awe, of your grace. And so, each of us in our own way cries out to you, come, Lord, and touch me. Um, reorganize me. Have your way. Be Lord. My self-management system is really not working very well. And so I yield to you. I give my heart to you. I start this year out with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.